This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So I had a little audience participation time here. In the meditation, how many people experienced something that was delightful, that they wanted it to continue? Anyone? Yeah, sweet, okay. How many people experienced something that wasn't delightful, that they really kind of wanted to go away? Okay, great, good stuff. How many people experienced going blank? Be honest, okay, right. So we're gonna circle back to this in the course of the talk. A little more audience participation. There are quite a few people I know here um, and quite a few people I don't know here. Just so I can get a sense, and I'm going to work this into the talk, why do we meditate? To find ourself. Okay? Why do we meditate? Thank you. To be kinder. I salute you. To promote peace. To promote peace. Attain higher consciousness. Give your mind a break. Give your mind a break. <laughs> Would that I could. <laughs> when you figure that one out, you tell me, okay? Just because it feels good. Just because it feels good. To cultivate right mind. Create a space between what you feel and what you do. Sweet. To create a space between what you feel and what you do. To be free. To be free. So I would, Derek. To gain serenity so you can give it back. Beautiful. Many of these things come to us in the course of meditating, but ultimately, According to the Buddha, we meditate in order to attain liberation, in order to be free. So, as Kim mentioned, my talk tonight is based on the Buddha's first talk. How many people really don't know much of anything about the Buddha or Buddhism? Okay, so I'll do a, a quick sort of capsule summary and we'll dive in. Also, I hope this isn't going to be off-putting to anyone. I, I am a second language teacher, so I'm going to do a little bit of second language. And since I'm speaking in English, the second language is going to be Pali, which is the language, a language that was spoken at the time of the Buddha. It's probably not the language that he spoke, but it's the language that the earliest texts were written down in. And Pali is basically a textual language for Buddhism. It, it, it's not a living language. It's related to Sanskrit. And the terms are very, very precise. And as a result, they don't translate very well. So I'm going to be kind of triangulating on the meaning of a concept in Pali. So sometimes I'll give the Pali word, and then I'll give 
several different words. Have you ever had an experience of studying another language and looking up a word in a translating dictionary, you know, and you get like four or five different words and you're, or looking up a word from the foreign language in your language then, and you get four or five different words and you go, how can that one word mean all these different things? So you kind of have to triangulate a bit. So I'm gonna be doing that, so bear with me. So the capsule summary of the Buddha's life. He was born into a very wealthy, powerful family in India, and his dad was a local prince, and he was spoiled rotten, and he had an experience where, or a series of experiences where he felt like, you know, this isn't it. Um, the story goes, he saw the, the four heavenly messengers, he saw a sick person, he saw an old person, he saw a dead person, and he saw a monk, a, a wandering ascetic. So he decided, after much soul-searching, that he would become a, a mendicant, a beggar, a, a spiritual seeker, and left the rich household, left the wife and newly born child, and really went at it with all he had. And there were two very well-known and, and very um, accomplished teachers, and he studied under each of them and attained their level of enlightenment. The second one was high, more highly attained than the first one, and realized that even those levels of attainment did not grant liberation, did not set him free. So then he goes out on his own and decides to take on a life of extreme asceticism and self-mortification. And he hooks up with five other mendicants, beggars, these uh, spiritual aspirants who were into this very intense self-mortification. And after about five or six years of this, when he's practically starved himself to death, he says, this isn't getting me there either. So he leaves the five and is given some food and regains his strength and goes off and sits under a tree and says, I'm not getting up until I've attained liberation. And sure enough, he attained liberation and wavers a while. Um, it, it's a very profound experience, a very profound teaching, and he's not sure that anybody would understand it. He decides he's going to go ahead and try. And whether this is by prearrangement or whether he just stumbled on them, his first audience is the group of five, the five people who have been starving themselves with him for several years. And at first, they spurn him. They don't want to have anything to do with him because he's gone soft. You know, he's eating and he's indulging in the senses. And by his presence and by the way he addresses them, he commands their respect. So he delivers his first sermon, which is usually called the Turning of the Wheel of Dhamma. Some of you may know the word Dharma, Dharma Sanskrit, Dhamma is Pali, so I stick with the Pali terms, the law, the way things are. And I have been very profoundly influenced by the teachings of Stephen Batchelor, and I, by way of full disclosure, this is where I got the title for my talk, 
we'll circle back to that at the end. But Stephen has a wonderful, very condensed translation of the turning of the wheel of Dhamma Sutta, and I'd like to read that to you. This is what I heard. He was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. He addressed the group of five. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized, and meaningless, and mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. It has eight branches, appropriate vision, appropriate thought, appropriate speech, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate mindfulness, and appropriate concentration. This is suffering. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful, encountering what is not dear is painful, separation from what is dear is painful, not getting what one wants is painful. This psychophysical condition is painful. This is craving. Craving is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, appropriate vision, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Such is suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let, let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision were not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision were clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. While he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in Kondanya. Whatever has started can stop. So, in a nutshell, that's the introduction to the Four Noble Truths. And the word noble in Pali is Arya. And alternate readings for Arya 
for the noble truths are the truths of the noble ones, the enlightened ones, the arhants, um, or it can be read as universal, standard, or ennobling, which is the one that I prefer and the one I'll be using this evening. So that the truths are not only noble, which to me, not being noble, uh, tends to place a distance between me and the truths, whereas the truths are ennobling, that by studying them, by incorporating them into my life, I become more noble. In the sutta, Stephen begins with the Eightfold Path, and this is not a talk on the Eightfold Path, but uh, as Kim said, Shaila's going to do the conclusion of the series on July 31st, with a talk entirely on the Eightfold Path, but it's inextricably part of the Four Noble Truths, and it, it sort of gets convoluted. It intertwines. So the first two elements of the ennobling Eightfold Path are appropriate vision, or more often translated, right understanding, which refers to seeing things as they actually are and the four ennobling truths explain things as they actually are. And the key point here is this word understanding things as they actually are. So we're going to circle back to the word understanding. And second of the, uh, the second branch of the ennobling Eightfold Path is appropriate thought, which refers to thoughts of selflessness, love, and nonviolence, or non-harming, and these two strands intertwine throughout all eight parts of the path and throughout all four of the Noble Truths. So many of you already know a lot of this, and I knew a lot of this, but as I was reading Stephen's book and as I was preparing for this talk, I really got it. I think when I read Stephen's book, I got it for the first time, that each of the four truths is not simply a truth to be believed, but it's accompanied by a verb, by something that you're supposed to do. Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it tasks to be accomplished. So that's where the title for the talk came from. The tasks to be accomplished were mentioned second. So each time the Buddha said, this is craving, and then he says, it can be fully known. It has been fully known by him. So each time he brings up the verb associated with it. So suffering, which in Pali is dukkha, and I'll talk about that in a minute, it, the verb is it's to be fully known, understood, comprehended. And Stephen said, embrace. The origin of suffering is to be abandoned. Stephen said, let go. The end of suffering is to be realized, and that's where to stop suffering. The path leading to this realization or this stopping is to be cultivated, and Stephen says, act. 
So it's really important, I think, for those of us raised in a Judeo-Christian culture, even if we weren't raised particularly religious, this is not a creed. These are not things that we say, I believe in the Four Noble Truths, and uh, the truth will set me free. It's, these are things that we are to do. And the doing arouses wisdom, knowledge, the Pali word that I think of when I think of culmination, if you will, of these efforts, which isn't the final culmination, but the, the aha each time one comes to mini fruition in my life is vija. And vija comes from the same place that our modern word vision comes from. It refers to seeing knowing. It's a knowledge that is experiential, intuitive, visceral, it's unshakable. It's not book learning. It's, I got it. And it's yours. And this knowledge, this vija, leads to liberation. So we keep circling back. Sort of fractal, you know. So I'd like to then unpack each of the four ennobling truths in more detail. And the structure that I've chosen to attempt to order my disorderly thoughts is to look at what each one is, what each one is not, and the task to be accomplished for each. So the ennobling truth of suffering, in Pali the term is dukkha, which is sometimes translated suffering, sometimes stress, sometimes unsatisfactoriness. All of these words are triangulating on this concept dukkha. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says it's best just to leave it untranslated. It, it comprises a lot of things that seem somewhat disparate, you know, my experience of the translating dictionary. But also because suffering is so freighted in English and stress in today's world has its own flavor and unsatisfactoriness, you know, death is unsatisfactory. I mean, they don't really match up all that well. So we can, you know, try to use one now and one another in another place. But going back to what the sutta says is dukkha. Birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair, encountering what is not dear, separation from what is dear, not getting what one wants. Sound familiar? Yeah. So this embodied existence, uh, Stephen translated it psychophysical something or other, um, us, this life, gives us lots of experience, opportunities to experience dukkha. And Stephen Batchelor goes on to talk about a relationship to dukkha as understanding that life is contingent, that things happen because other things happen. So stuff happens, right? That's an attempt to get our hands around what suffering is and what I want to stress that it is not, although sometimes this part of the text is translated this way, it's not life is 
suffering. It's that suffering will arise in life, but life is also delight. It's like there, there cannot be nothing but shadow. There has to be light in order for shadow to be. So sooner or later, something nice is going to happen and it's not going to stick around. Sooner or later, bad stuff is going to happen. Good news is it's not going to stick around either. And sooner or later, we're going to die. Sorry? It uh, depends on who you ask. Um, <laughs> Tony Bernhardt is going to be talking about karma, I think. And um, maybe he'll tell us. So the task to be accomplished is to fully know it. Stephen says embrace. In talking about this, he, mu- he says we must steady our gaze on the finitude, contingency, and anguish of our existence, which he acknowledges is not easy, but in order to embrace the truth of dukkha, we need mindfulness and concentration. So why do we meditate? Why do we cultivate mindfulness? Why do we cultivate concentration? In order to fully know suffering, and we must fully know suffering before we can be free of suffering. So again, we keep circling back, circling back. So the second truth, the ennobling truth of the origin of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, is craving. In Pali, it's tanha. Again, tanha doesn't map really well onto any of the words that have been used to translate it, but classically, craving is said to have three aspects. Craving for sensual pleasure, I think we all, you know, I don't need to explain that one, right? Um, Craving for becoming, which, or existence sometimes, uh, refers to the desire for the formation of states that have not yet arisen. So desire for the contact with the pleasant that we are not in contact with yet is one way to think of that. And the craving for non-becoming or annihilation um, can be construed as desire for the destruction of states that are already occurring. So again, the, the sort of pushing away, the I don't like it, kind of, you know? So there's, it, it sounds very abstruse, and it has very abstruse interpretations, but this one made sense to me. All three of these forms of craving are fueled by ignorance, avijja, not seeing knowing. And avijja gives rise to the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this takes us back to our experience in meditation. The experiences of delight we wanted to hang on to, the experiences of unpleasantness we were averse to, we wanted to push away, and the delusion we just weren't particularly paying attention, we weren't really in the room. You know. So they're all things that we experience quite commonly in our day-to-day, 
And some of you know uh, about me that I've become very interested in what I refer to as brain-based meditation. And Rick Hansen and Rick Mendius, uh, the authors of Buddha's Brain, talk about the way that greed, hatred, and delusion are really hardwired. Our ancestors, w millennia ago, in order to survive and pass on their genes so that we could be here today, had to pursue that which was desirable. They had to go after tasty fruits or attractive mates, and they had to avoid things that were undesirable, bad tasting things that might be poisonous, unpleasant people that might be intent on causing harm. And then the brain just needs to shut out most of the sensory impressions that the body is receiving. We would be totally overwhelmed if the brain was attending to everything that the body is, that is impinging on all of the sense doors. So greed, hatred, and delusion are part of the package. If you're feeling greed or hatred or delusion, don't beat yourself up for it. You know, it's maybe unskillful, maybe doesn't help you along the spiritual path, but it's simply part of being human. And the process of working on the spiritual path, in implementing the Buddha's teachings here, are, as the Buddha said, swimming against the stream. They're very difficult. Give yourself credit for even trying. You've got a lot of courage and a lot of integrity just to try it again and again and again and know that you are working to overcome something that is profoundly part of us, of our humanity. Getting back to the origin of dukkha. What it's not is not um, craving, is not just the pulling toward. The craving, the tanha. For me, craving meant I wanna. And tanha is also I don't wanna. Right? So the, the pushing and the pulling are both part of the, the craving. And what it means to let go is really to just relax your grip, relax the push. Stephen says of craving that it's not something I can willfully discard no matter how hard I tell myself to stop. To be free from craving requires the removal of the conditions that produce it. The root of craving lies in the misconception that lasting, non-contingent happiness is to be found in a fleeting, contingent world. As we come to realize how impossible this is, craving starts to subside and fall away of its own accord. So, simply by truly seeing suffering, the craving begins to crumble. But the roots are very deep in the psyche. And the verb in Pali that goes along with this abandoning has a very strong sense to it. It, it includes renouncing, getting rid of. Uh, again and again, the Buddha uses the term pull up by the roots, cut off like a palm stump, you know, no re-sprouting. And that quality of effort and intention, I think Stephen touches on when he talks about 
requiring the removal of the conditions that produce the craving. So it's not going to be like the Maharishi's mantra practice. It doesn't just do itself. It requires some work. But again, as Stephen says, just seeing the suffering allows the craving to begin to release and relax and crumble. So again, we have, again, this vijja, this seeing, knowing, this experience. So the next one, the ennobling truth of the cessation of dukkha. In Pali, the term here is nirodha, which is sometimes a synonym for nibbana, for, you know, the ultimate release. But nirodha also has an energy to it the sense of destruction. And I think it's a good companion to the, the effort involved in the letting go. You really need to have effort and intention and persistence in order to get to the cessation. What it's not is it's often described as the remainderless fading away and ceasing of all of that stuff, which I always thought was Nibbana with a capital N. That was what happened when I became an Arahant. And the thing about cessation is it arises again and again. In the IMSB website, it says, each time the mind lets go of some activity of clinging, the associated suffering ends. So any time we've had an experience of becoming totally engrossed in a task, in a book, in making a meal that we know how to make quite well, anything where the sense of self falls away is a space in the mind where cessation of suffering occurs. So again, going back to my brain-based meditation stuff, if you have an experience like that, pause a while and give yourself credit for it and savor it. Allow that to become part of the new wiring of the brain, extended in time and extended in space. Let it sink into the body and that will be transformative. So what it means to realize the end of dukkha, here the, the Pali verb has the sense of seeing with one's own eyes or experiencing for oneself. So this is directly tied to vija. For the longest time when I was reading about this again and again and again, I, I was always getting realized, confused with understand until I was working on this talk and um, my ESL stuff came to the rescue, realize has a, a sense in English that is synonymous with accomplish, like he finally realized his ambition to start his own business. So this is the realize of the cessation. It's a quality, it's a state of mind-body that we are instructed to establish and ultimately it will become unbroken. The ennobling truth of the path leading to the end of dukkha 
is just this eightfold path. And Stephen chose appropriate, the traditional translation is right view, right intention, right effort, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Oops, I got right effort in there twice, sorry. Right mindfulness and right concentration. Rather than go into the eight, I just wanted to touch on, as Tim referenced earlier this evening, there are three sort of subgroups that the eight are clustered into, and they're sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is ethical conduct, and the practice of generosity is part of ethical conduct. Sila is made up of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and these are based or have their foundation in the second of the noble truths of non-harming, that each of those three is a different flavor, a different tone of expression of non-harming. Samadhi comprises right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right concentration is samadhi, so samadhi is samadhi. Um, The Buddhist lists turn in on themselves, and they're fractal. Anyway, um, so again, each of these is an inward work of non-harming and is dedicated to the service, to the attainment of insight, and liberating insight sets us free. Panya consists of right view, sometimes translated right understanding, which was part of why I got confused with realize. The Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path show us right understanding and right intention, which again is basically non-harming. So the right understanding and the non-harming are coupled and traditionally, well, what it's not is in both of the traditional formulations of the eight listed sequentially or the groups of three, you might have noticed, but if you didn't, I'm going to point out to you, meditation doesn't start either list. So the list of eight starts with right view, right intention, and right effort. And the sila starts with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So it's not, strictly speaking, about meditation as the foundation or as the first step. It's about meditation in the service of attaining vijja, of attaining vipassana, liberating insight. And what it means the, to, uh, the, the task to be accomplished is to cultivate the path. And the verb used here in Pali is cultivate, like a farmer does with the field. It has the quality of beget, produce, increase, cultivate, as well as develop by means of thought and meditation. And we're instructed to cultivate the path. Like a farmer, we can set up all the conditions 
through our cultivation, we can till the soil, we can sow the seed, we can water, we can fertilize, we can weed, we can do everything necessary to protect and further the life of the crop. But the crop will ripen on its own, in its own time. We cannot bring the fruit to fruition, to ripeness. We can do the cultivating. So liberation will happen when it happens. And in conclusion, I would like to read another brief passage from Stephen's book that says it much better than I could. It spoke to me about how to translate or manifest all of this stuff in our practice and in our daily lives. Turning the wheel of Dhamma, the discourse Gotama delivered in the Deer Park in which he outlined his understanding of the Four Noble Truths boils down to this. Embrace, let go, stop, act. This template can be applied to every situation in life. Rather than shying away from or ignoring what is happening, embrace it with mindful attention. Rather than craving to seize it or get rid of it, relax one's grip. Rather than getting caught up in a cascade of reactivity, Stop and stay calm. Rather than repeat what you have said and done a thousand times before, act in an empathetic and imaginative way. Blessings. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.